So I think one of the ways in which we can help institutions is to provide evidence that allows them to understand, examine, and compare what can CDOs do that is impacted by the resources, that is impacted by the structure, that is impacted by how the institution is positioned, and also that is impacted by the characteristics that the CDOs themselves bring to the positions. Welcome to Student Affairs Now, the online learning community for student affairs educators. I'm your host, Heather Shea. Today, we are exploring the role of diversity leaders on college and university campuses. While diversity leaders exist at all administrative levels and ranks across both academic and student affairs, today's episode will focus on all of these roles, but with specific attention to the chief diversity officer or CDO. As somebody who works in higher education in a DEI unit, I can't wait for this conversation. And I am so grateful to the three of you who've joined me today. Um, before I introduce my guests, I'm going to share a little bit more about our podcast and today's sponsors. Student Affairs Now is a premier podcast and learning community for thousands of us who work in, alongside, or adjacent to the field of higher education and student affairs. We hope you'll find these conversations make a contribution to the field and are restorative to the profession. We release new episodes every week on Wednesdays. Find us at studentaffairsnow.com on YouTube or anywhere you listen to podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Stylus. Visit styluspub.com and use promo code SANOW for 30% off and free shipping. This episode is also sponsored by Vector Solutions, formerly EverFi, the trusted partner for 2000 plus colleges and universities. Vector Solutions is the standard of care for student safety, well being, and inclusion. So stay tuned to the end of the podcast for more information about each of our sponsors. As I mentioned, I'm your host, Heather Shea. My pronouns are she, her, and hers, and I am broadcasting from the ancestral, traditional, and contemporary lands of the Anishinaabe, Three Fires Confederacy of Ojibwe, Ottawa, and Potawatomi peoples, also home to the campus of Michigan State University, where I work. MSU resides on land ceded in the 1819 Treaty of Saginaw. So welcome to the three of you to the podcast. Um, I'd like to start with just brief introductions. Tell us your name, role, institution, uh, pronouns, et cetera. Um, and I'm going to start with Kelly. Welcome, Kelly. Greetings. My name is Kelly Perkins. I use she, her pronouns. Uh, I actually, a year ago, came out of the higher ed space and into the K-12 space. And so I currently serve as the Dean of Student Life and Culture. So think VPSA, but at a high school, um, at an independent all-girls day and boarding school uh, in Northern Virginia, about 12 miles outside of Washington, D.C., uh, prior to my time uh, at the Madeira School, I was in higher ed. I've served at a number of institutions in a number of regions, um, largely in residential life, but also have experience with first year experience, orientation, student leadership uh, programs, and student conduct. Thank you so much for joining. I think in our pre-conversation, you were like, is it okay if I join? I'm like, absolutely. We need people who have bridged that K-12 and higher ed. Um, divide often. So thank you for being here. Raul, welcome. Hi, good afternoon. Uh, I am very excited to be here. Uh, my name is Raul Leon, and I am joining you today from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Um, I 
returned to Madison after 11 years living in Michigan. So I hope the day is clear and sunny in Michigan across the lake, Heather. <laughs> Not um, bad today. Not bad. <laughs> Yeah, uh, my role uh, now is I'm the assistant vice provost for student engagement and scholarship programs. So we manage a number of uh, identity and talent programs for students across the university. And in my role, I am very glad to be serving students in the division of diversity, equity, and educational achievement. Great. Thank you so much for joining. I appreciate um, the, the shout out to Michigan, but also over across the lake. So um Bridget, welcome. Bridget, Hi. sorry, I'm That's mispronouncing great. your name again. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. Hi, um, yeah, I'm Bridget Dwyer, Bridget Dwyer Ajumwa. I use both names. Um, I use she, her pronouns, and I am joining from the um, Lenny Lenape territory, and uh, otherwise our institution here is um, the University of Pennsylvania. I serve as the Vice Dean for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. I'm the in the School of Arts and Sciences, and I'm the first person in this role. Um, so UPenn has an interesting uh, constellation of 12 schools, and there are senior diversity officers in uh, just about every single one of those those schools. So I'm excited to um, to be one of them. And and you know, throughout my career, I've had an opportunity to work both on the academic side as well as the student affairs side. And so this is a exciting opportunity that I've um, taken on about 10 months ago. And I get to do a little bit of both. So working a lot on faculty development, helping to support staff, as well as undergraduate, graduate students, alumni, um, and, uh, and postdocs too. So glad to be here. Awesome. Thank you so much, Bridget. It's nice to have you here, another member of the Big Ten, I think. Are we in the Big Ten together? I think we are. We're in the no. Ivy League. You're in the Ivy League. An alum, so, you know, okay. I still say go blue. There you go. There you go. And Raul also Big Ten. I know there's um, some sports people out there, but you know, all these things. Um, so today's episode um, actually features these uh, three authors from this book, um, Becoming a Diversity Leader. So we're going to take a bit of a different approach and have the chapter authors talk about their individual experiences and stories. Um, I particularly really appreciated this book as it was divided into three parts, understanding, becoming, and doing. Um, and so we're going to kind of explore all three of those sections. Uh, so beginning with understanding, Raul, in your chapter, um, you talk and you give a bit of an overview about the complexity of the role of the CDO or Senior Diversity Officer, Chief Diversity Officer. Can you talk a little bit more about how positions like this are situated on campuses? Um, you know, what kinds of work does this type of position do? And um, in general, what do we need to know about this role before we move on to having a broader conversation about it today? Absolutely. I think, uh, once again, thank you for the invitation. And uh, one of the things that I think might be worth mentioning is that when I started exploring this topic, uh, was about 2010, and this ended up being the topic of my dissertation. So at that point, as you might imagine, uh, CDOs were present in higher education, but what has been what was written about it, it was not as available or not as many publications. So a lot of the, my thinking into the CDO process came from really exploring what do these folks do? How do we come with a definition? How do we come with a better understanding? So when I saw the call for this proposal, I found the fit in that the idea of thinking about the role was one in which I felt compelled to write about. 
uh, before the other two sections of the book. So thinking about the CDO, I think the sentiment today is very similar to what it was 10 years ago, that scholars, practitioners, or institutions, or the public are captivated by the work of the CDO. And then sometimes they really have curiosity about the role, thinking about, can these folks transform higher ed? Can these folks uh, be in a change agent? So I think like the mystifying uh identity or nature of the CDO, it still captures uh, folks in the field. Uh, but also, I think today we have evidence that presents that CDOs actually can, in fact, lead institutions in many ways. But those many ways, is which once again adds complexity to understanding the role as to how institutions distinguish themselves from one another and how CDO roles might be different from roles at different institutions. Uh, one thing that I would like to speak about is that we cannot forget that CDLs cannot um, alone assume the mm -hmm. entire responsibility for diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts. And in fact, one of the main aspects of the work of the CDO that I touch upon the chapter as to what do they do today is that they are, or they bring a sense of congruence to the environment, to initiatives, to the work, and to the institutional goals and diversity plans. Uh, my chapter, in essence, what it does is it revisits key concepts that sort of were the foundation for me to understand this role. And having had the opportunity to consult with a number of institutions or speak with a number of diverse leaders, these are concepts that while now they've been in the field for a while, they continue to really be challenging as institutions picture how do we approach to do this work? And it can range from uh, we are appointing the first CDO, as my colleague just uh, shared, or we have had CDOs for many years. We're thinking about redesigning the position. So my chapter touches upon and what lessons sort of like we have learned about the CDO and its nature. Uh, what we what have we learned about institutions and how they position or create a context for the work of the CDO. Uh, I also talk a little bit about what have we learned about how we go about designing a CDO position. And also I conclude the chapter presenting evidence of information about the strategies that CDOs can implement and execute, which to my perspective is something that was missed on the field, sort of pos positioning an argument that explicitly says, these are some of the actions, the strategies, day-to-day -day activities that CDOs engage with in the role. Such a complex role and and definitely I think um, one where a lot of responsibility is housed. Um, Sarah Ahmed in her book um, on being included discusses the ways that sometimes institutions institutionalize the, the word diversity right as a way of kind of moving that um, into a space and acknowledging it but how do we make sure, in your opinion, how do we make sure that the CDO role isn't just symbolic or performative um, in, in, in kind of the conception mm -hmm. and then as it gets into the actions? No, absolutely. Um, one, one of the things that was enticing about this chapter and the evolution of knowledge about the CDO is that folks, uh, I, from my perspective, actually move from a theoretical, symbolic understanding of the CDO to a practice oriented. And I think the chapter does that. I think, to my knowledge, is the first book to bring together a lot of the uh, stories from diversity leaders in which they can tell in each chapter, what do they engage with every day? So to conclude my chapter, one of the things that I wanted to add 
uh, I devoted a section specifically talking about the roles of the CDO. And this includes roles such as being an educator, being a strategic planner, being a communicator, being a, a recruiter, but also being a symbolic leader. So that precise, I guess, contribution, what it does is it highlights the aspects that are very symbolic to the leader that go hand in hand with the work that the CDO does, but it also highlights all the other activities that are not just symbolic, that are not just something that institutions do to protect themselves, but rather can be enacted daily by this person, not only doing this work, but leading this work, coordinating this work, supporting this work. So I think one of the ways in which we can help institutions is to provide evidence that allows them to understand, examine, and compare what can CDOs do that is impacted by the resources, that is impacted mm -hmm. by the structure, that is impacted by how the institution is positioned, and also that is impacted by the characteristics that the CDOs themselves bring to the positions. Yeah, that's a really good point. What would either of the other two of you add to this in terms of what do we need to understand about the CDO role or um, diversity leaders in general? Well, I, I think that uh, I'll, I'll start. I think um, Raul, you know, gave a really excellent framing um, to, to, you know, really begin this conversation. Um, I love what what you said, Raul, about um, you know the CDO can't do it alone, right? I mm -hmm. think that that's it cannot be one person making transformative change. Uh, it's really we have to consider how we're talking about diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, you know, justice, uh, accessibility, all of those pieces as responsibilities of everybody within our organization. So we can't rely just on, on one person to do, um, to do all of the work, right? Um, and so I think it's great when you get teams and, and, and people thinking about the multitude of ways in which they're infusing um, a variety of perspectives um, into the work they're doing. So, and it, it, for me, I always, you know, I, I I also really focus a lot on that word diversity. So people are like, oh, diversity work. Oh, we're going to do the diversity thing. Or like, oh, let's talk about diversity. Let's get specific. We cannot just talk broadly about diversity. And a single person is not diverse, right? So I think we have these shorthands. Um, so, you know, Raul, what you're talking about in terms of a, being a communicator, right, really spoke to me. Um, so we have to be clear communicators. What are we talking about? We can't define or make change if we're not clearly articulating you know, what the challenge is or what our metrics are. Um, so we can say we want to become a more diverse unit or a more diverse department, but what does that mean? Are we talking about more women in the sciences? Are we talking about having more, you know, faculty that, um, that identify as LGBTQIA? Are we talking about, um, you know, infusing, you know, curriculum um, that really is speaking to a variety of different perspectives? And so I think that to me is really the work, right? That is, that is what it means to truly infuse and, and, to, and to be a part of like this, this uh, really broad conversation around you know, equity and justice and diversity. Um, it has to be quite broad. Um, and it doesn't mean that everybody's doing the same thing, right? So you know, as I said, I think what's appropriate for an undergraduate student population is not necessarily gonna be appropriate for a grad population or is not gonna be the same conversation you're having with your staff on campus. And so being able to, I think, pivot and shift in ways that you're talking effectively and not just talking, but you're actually putting into action plans that make sense for the different elements and the constituents within your organization, I think is critically important. 
I think um, as I'm listening to Bridget and thinking about where Raul started uh, and speaking about his chapter, to talk about language, right? How are we defining what we're doing, right, in the space that we're serving in? Um, and with that, a diversity leader certainly cannot do that work in and of themselves, right? Um, in order to get buy-in, right, we have to really ground ourselves in community, right, in the mm -hmm. community that we specifically serve, right? I think that um, that is what not grounding ourselves where we are is what makes this work particularly difficult and could get us into spaces where it feels like we're just talking, right? Or CEO yeah. is just a figurehead um, because we get so aspirational, right? Um, again, Raul really talked about that language piece, right? And how, how are we defining things at the start? Um, and we don't have, and are not able to cultivate spaces where we have shared definitions, shared understanding mm -hmm. of not only what the work in is, is and its challenges, but what we're even talking about, um, it can really be an uphill battle. Yeah, that's a, I think that's a really great point. I know at Michigan State, I think the first thing our CDO did in outlining our DEI strategic plan was, these are the words and this is the definitions and this is what we mean by those definitions. So when you refer to it later, you'll understand kind of how those initiatives are framed. Um, so I, I think in the second section, uh, Bridget, you uh, wrote about becoming, becoming a senior diversity administrator. And I'd love to hear some key points from your own story. What drew you to this field and how has over time, um, I know you're new to your role here, but you know inevitably you've been in the field for a while. Like how, how has that changed and how have your motivations changed um, from where you are now? Yeah, that's a, I mean, I feel like, you know, this, this is going to be a whole long conversation. <laughs> we could talk about this for quite a while. Yeah. But, you know, I'll, I'll say, I think I really, I came from a family of educators. Um, and so I think that that's where it began. And I give a lot of credit to, you know, to where I'm from. I'll, you know, rep the West Coast, so Oakland, California. Mm -hmm. um, but really, you know, and I talk about this in the chapter, I think that where we begin in life is really formative in terms of who we are and, and, and where and and I guess who we become later in life. Um, and so for me, you know, I was born into a, um, a single parent family um, in the Bay Area. My mom identifies as white, um, my dad's black. And uh, my mom as a, as a white woman decided that she needed to stay in Oakland and raise her, um, you know, her biracial child that really having a lot of conversations around race, having a lot of conversations around um, you know, religion, having conversations about ability, all of these things are really important to her. She's from, you know, from Chicago, she could have easily gone home and raised me, you know, with, with the, with the Irish family, but she made this really intentional choice. And so, um, you know, for me, I, a lot of this really starts with my upbringing. So, you know, having conversations about what it was, I was also a, a, a swimmer. Um, so having a lot of conversations about what it meant to be one of few, if like only, you know, people of color in a swimming community, um, you know, conversations about, you know, the Rodney King riots, what it was like to go to a, you know, a, a private school, kind of like the one that, that Kelly is, is at right now, I imagine, um, and what those dynamics were in terms of, you know, race and class and um, all those different components. And so, you know, I think probably, I would imagine, um, probably like my colleagues here on the call, as you know, high schooler, as a college person, I had no idea this was a career. Like I didn't know you could do this. <laughs> um, and so I just, I think it, for me, it was really just kind of one foot in front of the other. It was, um, 
you know, kind of listening to the conversations that were happening. It was being active in the conversations. It was, you know, as a student athlete in college, um, you know, I was I was sort of organizing with other student athletes and we were asking, you know, well, how come the football team gets, you know, all these jerseys, but, you know, our swim team, we get one swimsuit and it's see-through and that's like there's <laughs> gender issues, there is income issues, right? There's a whole lot of things going on here. Um, so I think a lot of my journey really is, is a sense of curiosity and it's a, it was really rooted in a sense of equity um, and not just necessarily about my own situation, but really looking for others and saying, hey, you know, that, that, you know, I've heard the story of somebody else and that that's not making sense to me. It might not be the whole story, but, you know, help me understand what's, um, you know, what's going on here and why like, we can do better. You know, that's that situation is, is not great. Uh, so I think, you know, for me, that was sort of what initially led me into kind of my early career. And mm-hmm. um, I thought that I was going to have a, I think initially I thought I was going to have a career as a swim coach and a, um, and a teacher. Um, and, you know, and then I think there was a period of my life where I thought I was going to be in college athletics. Um, and then, you know, I, I think that it was, it was the conversations that continued to come up. It was my you know, it was my exposure in grad school to uh, talking about equity and looking at, at access. Um, you know, some of some of the other work that I've done and the research I've conducted has been around minority serving institutions. And um, while I, you know, I didn't attend one, or I guess I technically attended one um, because UCLA is now in Anapizi, but at the time it was not, that designation did not exist. Um, but really looking at the ways in which different institutional types can provide tremendous opportunity and access was really, I think, what brought me in. Um, and, you know, then I worked in multicultural affairs and I've been fortunate to have a lot of mentors um, throughout my life that I think I've just, again, been able to ask these questions and just to kind of, you know, follow that curiosity and people say like, oh, you should, you know, you should look at this opportunity or have you considered that? Um, so I think mentorship is a big part of it. I think, um, you know, following, you know, the field and just kind of really looking at some of the research. Um, you know, I think that, I think Raul's chapter talks a lot about um, Damon Williams and Katrina Wade Golden's work. And I think that was really foundational in, uh, in, in really kind of setting the stages. You know, one of the, one of the first books that's really kind of taking a bunch of information and talking about the strategy around chief diversity officers and um, the ways in which we're implementing diversity plans. Um, so yeah, I think that it's been, it's been really interesting to see the ways in which I've, you know, shifted. I think I said in my introduction that I've worked on both the academic side as well as the student affairs side. And I've learned so much by going back and forth and by teaching classes. Um, and, you know, I, I think that, like I said, I feel very lucky to be in this position I'm now because I've got to utilize a lot of the different experiences I've had, both on the student affairs side, as well as, um, as well as on the academic side. Um, and so I think this idea about becoming is that in our chapter, we talk about, you know, our journeys and, and the stories and sort of some of the pivotal moments that happened and, and kind of led us into these different these different places. Um, my, this is myself and my colleague, Latanya Buck. Um, but I think we also discussed that becoming is something that is continual. You know, in some ways we, we're inspired a little bit by Michelle Obama's book, right? And this idea that you're never done with becoming. You're constantly evolving. The, the, the CDO role has evolved so much. We're evolving with it. Um, and so I think that's the idea about becoming. We have to be open to, to learning. And, and so our, our, both our early experiences inform how and who we become later in life, but that we're not done. We're not a finished product. We're constantly becoming and reinventing and evolving with the roles. 
I think one of the parts of your chapter that really spoke to me, and maybe maybe it's because I'm just coming off of having had COVID or it's the beginning of the school year kind of rush, um, but you have a section called becoming tired, <laughs> kind of the, the balancing the act of giving versus the burnout and also kind of the ways that we continue to refill, you know, our um, energy for this work, which requires a lot. Um, can you talk a little bit more about the ways you balance your own needs and also attend to the needs of your campus and to others? Um, yeah, no, I think that's that's a really that's a really tough question, and I think one that everybody um, struggles with. And I think particularly, you know, the beginning and the end of the year in particular. Um, you know, for me, I think it was there was really this sort of pivotal moment that I reflect on, and I talk about it also in the chapter, where you know I had. Um, I had three small children and, you know, I was working probably 40, 50, you know, not 40, 50, 60 hours, you know, I was teaching a class. I would go to work at, at you know, nine o'clock in the morning and then I would teach a class and I was done at 9 p.m. And I remember I was meeting, I was trying to advise a student group and we could, we realized that the only time that we had available mutually to meet about something that was pretty time sensitive um, and that sort of involved a multitude of, you know, administrators and, and sort of some sensitive issues was like 9.30 at night and, oh. and we met. And <laughs> I was grateful to be able to give that advice and time to the students. But I was also left reflecting, you know, I'm not at home, you know, mm. I, I have three kids. Um, how am I being good to them? What, what burden is this putting on my partner? Um, and how, 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 do I, how do I write this? Cause this is, this is not okay. Um, and so it's not easy, but I will say that, you know, I've had mentors and, and I think, um, you know, Latanya and I talk about this a lot in our chapter that, um, and I say, I think she's been, really been a mentor for me as well about creating some boundaries, about saying no. Um, I think for, for so long, um, a lot of people in DEI work have always said yes, because we're looking for a seat at the table, you know, oh, we're, you know, we're not invited because, you know, you're that gender or that race or, you know, whatever it might be. Um, and so you say, when you get the invitation, you say yes, you say yes constantly. And I think now we're at a place where you don't have to say yes all the time. You know, there's a lot more critical awareness and thinking um, and infusion of DEI issues um, into everyday workings of universities. And so it's learning to say yes, but not right now. It's mm -hmm. learning to say no, um, and this is why. Um, and using that no very strongly and strategically in particular ways. Um, and I know other people have said this before, you may have heard this, but you know, your yes is only as strong as your no. And so those are some different things that I try to continue to remember. Um, you know, practically, I, I try not to send emails you know, too late at night to my colleagues, even if I'm working on a project. I, I still use a delay, you know, the delay send on, on Outlook. I will try not to send emails over the weekend because I believe in that. And I think that um, for so long for me, I've, I've had great mentoring. I mentioned that, you know, I've had really, really wonderful mentors. And I also think that some of the mentoring I got was the constantly saying yes and seeing people get sick and burn out and, you know, need to go on long-term disability and, you know, have medical procedures. And, and there, there are links, there are, there are, there are, very strong medical links and studies that talk about the connection between stress and poor health. Mm -hmm. And that's real. That's very real. And so I've, I've learned to bound in different kinds of ways. Mm -hmm. um, I think at the beginning and the end of the year, I may let that go a little bit, a little bit more because it's just really busy. 
but I try to write that ship. And, and so I, you know, I, even this week I was recognizing that I was like, I've been doing a lot lately. I need to make sure that I'm making clear decisions and that I, you know, I have that rest to be able to reflect and, and do that strategy work and not just, you know, quickly respond to things that are happening. Yeah. Other thoughts um, from either of the other two of you on this concept of becoming or on the idea of burnout and how do you kind of keep your energy going when, when you're trying to face with all of these different decisions and, and roles? I think that one of the things that I've been thinking about um, as I, I am on medical leave currently from my, from my job for burnt out um, mm -hmm. is definitely burning the the full candle, not at both mm -hmm. ends, just the full candle um, for the last year, um, which I think, uh, you know, COVID has, you know, holding everyone's COVID anxieties and things in my role definitely did not help. And so one of the things I've been thinking about is I've been trying to figure out, okay, how do I re rebalance, right? Um, when I return to work in a couple of weeks. And I think that if I am trying to do diversity work, right? And I'm trying to embody that it is not consistent, right? With my own social justice beliefs for me to burn myself right. at all ends, right? Um, particularly, I think about um, that I work with high schoolers now. And so I feel like the the burden is even larger um, in some ways. They're watching, right? They're still young enough that they are watching me. They're watching what I do. They're showing up. They go to class and they tell, you know, teachers, well, Miss Perkins said, <laughs> right? And we believe her because we see her living um, what she speaks about, living the work. And so if that is the case, then it's even more important, right? That I'm taking care of myself. Um, and knowing that we started off talking about, Raul's chapter and the, fa the fact you can't do this alone, right? Mm. If so, if all true, right? How do I, uh, particularly, right, as a Black woman, um, because I think that identity, right, and that notion of saying yes and trying to get buy-in definitely plays heavily into this conversation. Um, but how do I really take on some... Uh, in a radical way, right? That that's saying no, right? I've been practicing even, you know, saying no. And then if, so that I can give myself time, right? Maybe going back and thinking about something and then, oh, you know what? Maybe actually I could do this and I, um, but I could do, or I can only do this under these circumstances and going back, right? To give people a win. Um, but I think that no is a strategy, right? For, for self-care. Um, and you just, you can't, do this work you can't talk social justice and then run yourself into the ground right because that is uh super capitalistic and at the end of the day mm. I would not do it for free or less than what I do it for yeah thank you so much I think that that really speaks to me as well um Raul what would you what would you add yeah, I think first, uh, I do want to honor the perspectives that the, the two other folks have shared, because mm -hmm. I think being healthy to be able to lead both out of work and in your personal life is key and important. And sometimes it's a hard lesson that some of us have to learn uh, when we are in those spaces, right? Um, but I think uh, one aspect that um, I can reflect upon the theoretical background that I have familiarized myself with is that CDOs today are also coming from places in which they have been more formalized in a way that diversity training 
is now a path in which they've been sort of uh, acquainted with. Uh, I think like uh, when you look at the pathway to the CDO or mm. the pathway to become a diversity leader, you can find some pathways in which there might be folks that access leadership positions and then became diversity officers because they were highly ranked faculty or highly ranked administrators. Uh, you might have uh, other folks that uh, you know were in the field for several years and were diversity advocates, so therefore this position become appealing. But uh, Damon in a piece uh, recently, uh, not so recently, noted that there there is this path in which now we have folks that have been trained in strategic diversity leadership. They have occupied positions in the student affairs that you know that have rose to the ranks, but they also been familiar with the language, the content, the scholarship, and they've been trained as uh, diversity change makers or diversity transformational agents. And they're very familiar with the literature, the books, and what it takes to do the work. So I think as to how we look at the evolution of the CDO, we might think that we are now sort of enjoying to uh, having candidates that will bring a really strong expertise, not only in the practical aspect, but have been formally trained to uh, potentially be a chief diversity officer. So that's one aspect that I think uh, is there and it's pertinent, but I don't hear a lot of people chatting about it. And when they pick a CDO, when they select the CDO, sometimes we still forget that what are the skills that are important? Like what is the background of this person? Are these skills truly transferable? to do this work? Can anybody do this work? Is there some form of training that perhaps is not required that might benefit and enhance the capacity of this person to do the work? So I think those are important. Yeah, I think that's uh, I think that's really speaks to me also. And part of it is as a higher education administrator, having studied higher ed, you're like mm -hmm. this is actually a field. Um, and sometimes you can have been a kinesiology professor or something and move into this, but that's, there is a body of knowledge here, right? And I think in terms of work, I'm also thinking about doing our own work, right? And recognizing the ways in which our identities are influencing the way that we view the world. And um, I recognize like as a white woman, I can say no in ways that my other colleagues can't necessarily sometimes sit and, and just say no. So I think balance and all of that kind of plays into it. Um, Kelly, I want to go back to you too, because I think in your chapter in this um, section on becoming, you talk a lot about identity saliency and that kind of self-actualization within the system um, and from different social identity vantage points, right? So can you talk a little bit about how you did that self-work um, and what recommendations you might have for people who aspire to transition into into uh, diversity leadership roles um, where, from wherever they came, but from that kind of identity piece. Absolutely. Um, so I actually wrote my chapter with my former supervisor from the University of Vermont, um, Dr. Rafael Rodriguez. Uh, and so Vermont, obviously one of the whitest states in the nation. I think it goes back and forth with West Virginia for the whitest. Um, and at the time when I entered the community at the University of Vermont, um, I pretty much was the only like across even our division, like the only like black woman um, in this kind of mid senior type role um, within the division of student affairs. Um, and uh, Raphael is a um, Puerto Rican man, first gen from New York City, he still has a super strong New York accent, right? Um, and so we really uh, wanted to talk about what does it look like to be um, 
you know, leading a department, right? Kind of number one and number two, um, and doing diversity work and thinking about it from really from our identities, um, because um, unfortunately, I feel like sometimes as a black woman um, who does, I try to really hard, um, it's really important to me to uh, walk my talk, right? And to be demonstrating, um, doing, doing my work. Uh, but I think that sometimes I do suffer really um, as far as the pressures put on me, right? In this work mm -hmm. from, um, because I'm somebody who shows up and I'm just, you know, this is what I do, right? So I'm talking about things off bat, right? My current institution, um, when I got here, they didn't have, uh, people weren't really using pronouns, but because I'm coming from the higher ed space, that's really just part of what I do. And so I have a signature with pronouns and a link to the NIH website about why this is important. And now um, this year they've modeled, they our communications department has fashioned that um, email signature of the way I've set it up for everybody, right? Um, and I think students notice, right? And parents, um, but again, because of that and because of my positionality, right? Because we can't take that out of it, not that my position or my identity, um, but they do tend to get conflated, right? When you're in a position where you could actually make change, right? Um, it is, it's so much harder, right? Um, and so that's really what our chapter was about. And so how do we think about how we ground ourselves, right? And again, continue to do our learning. I don't know everything there is to know, right? Um, none of us do. I'm not what I was 10 minutes ago, just because mm -hmm. I've been here with the three of you engaging in this conversation, right? And so if that's true, how are we modeling doing the work, knowing that as Bridget spoke about, this is, it's continual. It is not, um, it is not overnight, right? And it just, it simply does not stop. Um, and so I think in that, one of the things we talked about with Becoming is um, in, the, in these roles, um, particularly, like I said, as people of color, right? Um, trying to lead various initiatives uh, is one, understand what the charge is, right? I think getting really mm -hmm. clear, it's a lot easier to say no and to stick with that when you're not trying to carry everything on your back, yeah. right? Um, which which is hard. It's very difficult. Um, I'm currently an only, I'm the only person of color on our, on our administrative team, right? Uh, I am not quite as young as I look, but I'm definitely the youngest administrator. So people, I, you know, show up with the students a lot differently maybe than some administrators, which makes me, and then I'm a, a dean of students, right? And so that makes me a really easy, um, really accessible, right? For people to grab and say, Miss Perkins, Miss Perkins, Miss Perkins. Um, but I think it's no is much easier when there is um, a clear charge. I think the other piece is thinking about allies, right? Who who are your allies? I um, uh, have been trained in uh, practicing restorative practices for a number of years now. Um, and so one of the things I've been trying to do as I've been implementing in my current role is thinking about who are my allies? Who are the people who seem to really buy into this, but also who um, have the connections, right, that I need to maybe um, a little more difficult for me to get um, because of, well, for a couple of reasons. One, my newness, right? Um, but also, quite frankly, because of other people not doing their work and the biases they they mm -hmm. hold, right? Mm -hmm. um, 
And so who are those people who can, I can send out, right? Who are my foot soldiers, right? Um, I think another thing is centering yourself on what's important, right? Bridget spoke a lot about, but what is the cost to my family, right? What is the cost of my family? Um, I have family members who live with me, right? And I don't, I don't want them to see me coming. They're older, right? But um, I don't want them to see me coming home at multiple nights in a row at nine o'clock at night, right? Because, um, or coming home crying or, mm. you know, exhaust, you know, too exhausted to even have a meal with them because I am so wrapped up, right, in the work. Like, while it is important, again, um, and uh, I would say of utmost importance, given our current, um, the current state of things, you know, for me, I'm thinking about in the state of Virginia, our Governor Youngkin just um, got past laws basically to say that uh, schools, no, K-12 schools no longer have to make any accommodations for transgender students. Um, and I feel like, you know, one of the things I'm trying not to let myself do while I'm on leave is spin and say, oh my gosh, what is happening on my own campus? I was, we've done all this work last year to add some salient protections for transgender students. And while we're at an independent school and we don't have to follow, right, the state laws in some respects, we also, it's an independent school, it's very expensive. Our main constituent, our parents, right? <laughs> Which is something we don't talk about really, um, uh, I think, robustly enough. Um, and so if that's the case, like, what is happening, right, to my to my students? What's what's going on? What's going to be the change when I return? Um, but we have to, I can't do all that by myself, right? I just, I just can't. Um, I just can't. Uh, and so I think it's thinking about that, right? You're, what are your, what are your reasons? What are your why, right? Personally, what are your institutions wise, right? What can you, what, what, what needs to be, what, and what's the low hanging fruit, right? Some of time thinking about what, what can be done immediately? How can I give students a win? Um, and I think I'm fortunate to be in a role where I'm at because I do get to really just say, focus on the students, right? Um, and not that I'm not focused on the adults, but generally if we take care of the least of us, right? We're gonna take care of everyone and it'll be fine, right? Even if people initially freak out um, with change, but also finding those adults who are my allies who can say, oh no, this is why this change is important. This is how this makes the student experience better. This is how we make sure that folks feel like they belong um, here and are included. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, as you were sp speaking about the different roles and our focus on different constituents, I was thinking a bit in the in the last section on doing and how um, one of the chapter authors talks a lot about wearing several different hats and how to do truly transformative diversity work. You have to be comfortable, right? Speaking in different audiences, giving advice to both undergraduate students and the president or the chancellor of your institution. Um, sometimes within like one Zoom meeting, switching channels to the next Zoom meeting. Um, so Bridget, do you want to talk a little bit about how all of these, how you wear all of these different hats and how you've navigated these personal experiences and professional roles um, in, in your capacity on your campus at Penn? Yeah, so I think that this is a, this is a great, a great question. And um and it changes, and I think it's changed at different points in my in my career too. I think, you know, I think when I was younger, I would maybe 
say, it doesn't matter, you know, I'm going to show up the same way authentically to every single group. And, <laughs> and then to a certain extent, but I also think that, that I somehow I've learned, I don't know, maybe just from observation that, um, different people need different messages. And I think sometimes different people need different messengers as well. So I also might not be the right messenger for every single audience. Um, and so I think a lot about that. I think a lot about um, my role as negotiator um, in terms of, in, and messenger, I think both together. Uh, am I the right person to deliver that message or is somebody else the better person to deliver that message? Mm -hmm. um, you know, again, I wanna echo both things that I think Kelly and, and Raul said, you know, I think Raul said from the outset about, you know, you're a recruiter, you're an educator, you're a communicator, right? And then so many other things as, as sort of a, a CDO in that, in that kind of role. And I, and I think that that's true. I think that, um, you know, we have to be able to recruit both faculty, staff, students um, effectively. We have to be able to retain them effectively. Um, we have to be able to um, do some really good work in terms of providing workshops and support. And we also have to tell that story, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so we can be doing all these great things, but I think especially at, at um, I think it's true in any institution. I think every institution has its own stereotype, right? So it could be, oh, it's that, you know, big state institution and, you know, we... It's only known by, you know, that thing that happened 20 years ago, right? Or it's, oh, the Ivies and, you know, the particular reputation are, oh, you know, the community college and we have this stereotype about a community college. No, so we've got we've to say, we're all doing really good work. We're just doing it differently and we're doing within our purview. Um, Kelly again was talking about, you know, some of the, the differences between kind of a state and a private institution and sort of the ways in which we navigate that. So, you know, the conversations that, that I had at a state institution and the actions I had to take at a state institution are different than what I what I take at, at Penn, right? Um, and those are also different than than the ways in which I I interact at uh, interacted at Princeton, you know, my last institution. Um, both Ivies, both very elite, but different. Um, so really, I think getting to know that culture of your institution and even the culture, the sort of subcultures that exist, whether it's a student affairs unit, you mentioned, you know, the president's office, uh, a particular school, you know. Um, at, at different at different universities, there's sort of there's oftentimes sort of that academic program that's everybody's like, oh well, there's that program or there's that school or you know, um, and so knowing what carries weight and how you navigate mm -hmm. that, I think, is is really important. Um, and then circling back to what you know we were saying before about about mentorship, I think both you know what I was saying about becoming and what I heard reflected in what Kelly was saying as well. Um, I think, you know, I've been fortunate to have a lot of great mentors, but I'm also very cognizant that I'm a mentor, right? Yeah. Um, just like Kelly was saying, you know, they're looking at, oh, what's Ms. Perkins saying? What's Ms. Perkins doing? Mm -hmm. um, I've got to be mindful about the ways in which I'm showing up because um, people are watching um, whether they're saying anything or not, um, especially our students. They're often copying. They're saying, oh, I want to do what, you know, what Bridget did. And so mm -hmm. I, I, that means I better work 80 hours a week or I better, you know, show up every week. no. I think it's important that our students see, again, at every level, that it's okay to say no and say, you know, I'm going to show up and you know I'm going to be there and when I'm present for you, I'm listening. But if I show up to everything like that, again, I know somebody who like has fallen asleep <laughs> in meetings, right? You know, a couple of people actually even fall asleep in meetings. That's I want to be there and be present and as attentive as I can be. Um, for for folks and and so I think that, that taking on and putting putting off those hats and I think giving the hat to other people yeah uh, really important too yeah that's a great point Raul what would you add to the 
concept of identities yeah. and hats and yeah. doing uh, this work. Yeah, there, I think there's a concept that is very clear and complements what has been shared so far is, I think the idea that CDOs are charged with rebuilding trust at all institutional levels is something that is reoccurring in many positions. Mm -hmm. I think one of the main tasks is that the CDO asks, acts as an integrator and building trust wearing different hats is a little tricky. And specifically, if we acknowledge the following, I think many CDOs uh, represent minority groups or minoritized groups. And therefore, you are trying to wear a hat in which your beliefs, your you, what, what, what you value might be going against the grind of oppression or against uh, things that are not equitable. But at the same time, you now also are an administrator. You also represent the admin team. You see it in the leadership's cabinet. So I think you will be in groups in which they will question what uh, I think is Professor Pratt, uh, yeah, Pratt Clark uh, sort of mentioned that there is a dance between uh, your loyalties to particular groups, whether that is students, faculty, communities that represent your identities and how they will perceive how your loyalties are tested as you come into many spaces. So I think the dynamics of those different hats are that they will test not only your personal beliefs, but also the institutional beliefs. And you will have to respond to those institutional pressures that uh, in some spaces you will be tokenized and in other mm -hmm. spaces you might be the one that needs to stir or the power or, or shine the light in, in institutional pockets that might not be places where diversity, equity, and inclusion are a priority. So yeah. I think it's knowing how to put your hat and sometimes knowing that the hat you're putting on is you are an administrator. That's mm -hmm. mm -hmm. so, it's so challenging. And I think the campus climates that we're finding ourselves in right now too and doing this work and um, the concluding chapter of this book is about cancel culture, navigating call out culture, um, and it it does it does feel like it's a particular hot button issue. A recent episode that I hosted was around identity based student activism and how mm -hmm. how this it, this is not new, of course, but like it does feel like it's it's uh, risen to an even higher level. Um, and sometimes that means that it's all falling on the role of the CDO to kind of take that. So I, I'm really curious. I know the authors of that chapter aren't here today, but I'm really interested in hearing what each of your thoughts are on how do you transform institutions in the midst of a call out or cancel culture um, mm -hmm. and the vulnerability that's required to do this work right now um, in our society? Um, Kelly, I'll start with you. Sure. Um, I love the way that Dr. Loretta Ross talks about calling out versus calling in. Mm -hmm. um, her big, she really pushes um, calling people in. And I think about um, that, the, what we've been talking about previously, the multifaceted role, right, of the CDO. Like, and I think that one of the things that I always remember is that I am an educator first, right? And so educate, it doesn't, doesn't mean just students, right? I am educating my family, right? I'm educating the people around me. I'm educating um, my fellow colleagues, right? I'm on in my current role, I'm educating the administrators, right? Um, my fellow administrators. And 
you, I, I don't necessarily take that hat off, right? If I believe I'm an educator, then I believe that we're always learning, then I do have some responsibility in that. But I don't think that um, for me that it's a getting rid of calling out. Sometimes we have to call out, right? If there's actively mm-hmm. harm, right, that is um, being perpetuated, right? If somebody is doing something or saying something that is just so egregious, there is a point where we have to say, no, stop, right? Um, In order to then call somebody in, right, to have that conversation, um, to try to engage them in the necessary learning um, to get them uh, to um, to change to change their heart, right? Hopefully, um, in order to change their mind. Um, but I don't think that. I think the scary part now is social media, right? Um, mm-hmm. I think about my students. One of the things um, that they've said to me. Uh, now, mind you, I have you know fourteen to eighteen year olds, and they say, "Well, Miss Perkins, I don't understand why this student doesn't know that all black people aren't poor, right? A kid who grew up." who's 14 year old, who grew up in Great Falls, Virginia, right, right next door to me, which is one of the richest cities in the entire United States of America, right? It's, it's overwhelmingly white. It's where the governor of of uh, Virginia came from, right? Um, well, it's like kids, of course they don't know that. <laughs> you're, you're literally in school because you're learning, what's something you learned yesterday in school that you didn't know, right? Um, and people aren't, and they assume that they should all know all the same things because of the um, amount of access that mm-hmm. they have to information that we all didn't, right? And so I think for me, the call-in, call-out um, conversation is about how do we make, uh, how do we help our students, right? How do we help each other to see each other as human again, right? And, and leave room for imperfection. Mm. It just, we don't, I, I feel like we don't do that. Um, now. And I don't know if, um, I'm not sure how much COVID has heightened some of that, right? Because everybody, everybody was inside, right? Watching George Floyd, right? Happen as, as it was being filmed, right? Um, Because, because of the pandemic. Um, I think that there are just so many things happening in our world that I think make the ante feel so much higher, that it's so hard for folks to stop and really think about, um, what was the intention here, right? What was the intention, right? Who is this person, right? Because we all bring, you know, saying our our myriad of identities with us to every space we're in, to every conversation, to every interaction. And if that's true, um, how do we stop long enough to say, okay, what's going on here, right? What's the full context um, in order to figure out the best way to respond? Yeah, Raul, Uh, Bridget, what would you add to this concept of call-out culture? Um, I I could uh, share something. I was having a conversation in an event uh, a a couple of weeks ago that um, I remember reading earlier in my career, uh, the diversity crisis response model that was put by Damon, which, you know, this is what happens and how we respond to the crisis and go back, don't make changes, and here's the next crisis, right? So it gives you yeah. a little piece in between Absolutely. to be able to not prepare for the next crisis, but just to do your work till the next crisis happens. And one of the things that I was sharing with folks is that I think we, we really need to strive to operate in an institution in which the work that you do 
truly convinces the stakeholders, whether that is students, faculty, staff, or colleagues, that your values are where you say your strategic plan is. So when a crisis occurs, we are not questioning the values of the institution, but we're mm -hmm. questioning perhaps the in individuals that might have participated in this, but we know who we really are. So we really know that this is an outlier, right? I have never been a big fan of putting a statement immediately when it happened to address something. I, I, I actually always have fellas like, well, if we know who we are, then, then like the apology will have more meaning because they know it's not us. But if they don't and we don't focus on changing that work, then it doesn't matter how beautiful the statement is. Uh, it still is not who we are, right? So mm -hmm. I think it can go both ways. So my idea of a CDO is like, can we also spend time informing the institution to better understand what we do, why we do it, and also recognize the milestones of progress that we have taken because I believe crisis can sometimes crumble the entire process of, of that. Like, I think there's a saying that it takes a lot, a lot less to destroy something than to build it, right? It takes a lot uh, more to build a sandcastle than <laughs> to destroy the entire thing. And I am trying to operate in a way that we invest time and foundations. Mm -hmm. That's really powerful. Yeah, I love, I love what you're saying there. You know, I, I think it circles back to where we were talking about at the beginning around sort of the symbolism, right? And so had a lot of these conversations with colleagues around how much time do we put into like wordsmithing and getting our, you know, statement perfect and put it out there. So it's like, let's do the work, like let's do the work, not just, the, you know, it's been eight hours and, you know, eight, eight, an hour of eight people, right? And eight times, right? It's, it's exponential. It really, can build up. Um, so yeah, I love what I love what you said there, Raul. And um, I think you know Kelly, you also just outlined so many great things around kind of you know uh, calling in or inviting into the conversation. You know, I can come from a, a tradition of intergroup dialogue where we're always talking about being in a relationship with one another. And so mm -hmm. if we are you know canceling each other, we are not in relationship. Um, you know, it's funny because as you all were talking, I remember this, this story from back when I was an undergrad. I remember getting really upset with this kid who I used to hang out with. It might have been my first year. And it, I just was like, on Prince, I was like, I'm not talking to him anymore, right? So I had canceled him. I had just canceled him. <laughs> and then like a year later, I was like, why did I say right so it's like but we were in relationship we we still saw each other all the time so I had to make an active point to actually not talk to him um because our circles you know connected and so the, this point about humanity we're all we're here we have to nobody is perfect how do we have the forgiveness and the, the just the patience and the understanding to see one another's humanity um yeah we're all constantly learning and and, and Kelly your point about we expect people to know everything just because we have access to that information. Like very beautifully said, very beautifully said. Um, so, so I'm just saying, you know, I echo everything my colleagues have already said. I think we really need to think about the ways in which we're connecting together and really be intentional about um, not just being uh, firefighters, but really being like the fire marshal, right? How are we doing the, the prevention? How are we doing the prevention work? How are we setting that foundation and really building on top of that so that we, you know, if we're, if we're able to send, to have that attention, then it's like, oh, that's a quick, that's a quick, like small blaze. We'll just, you know, that's, that's, you know, we can just take a little uh, extinguisher and it's out. We don't need the, all the planes to come in and, you know, douse everything. Um, and so that, that, that proactive nature is just so, so critically important. Um, and um, the piece around trust, 
trust and time, right? Things don't happen mm -hmm. overnight. It takes a lot of trust and it takes time to build. So we have to be patient with each other. Yeah. That's really powerful. I was um, thinking, I don't know if you all are familiar with the author, Adrienne Marie Brown, but her book, We Will Not Cancel Us, um, really speaks to this idea of our shared humanity, right? It's not a you versus me thing. It's a we. And so if we're all invested in moving forward together as a community, um, it's a beautiful little short pamphlet type book, but her work is uh, kind of, I was like, oh, reminding me here. Um, it's as we always end, it feels like the time goes by so quickly. I'm so grateful to all of your, um, your insights today. We always end kind of with our final question. Our podcast is called Student Affairs Now, and I'd love to have you each take a minute or two to summarize what you're pondering, questioning, thinking about, excited about, troubling. Um, and if you are interested in sharing how people can connect with you, um, that would be great. So Bridget, I'll start with you. Ah, well, no, I, I think that my my challenge right now is I'm I'm pondering and I'm thinking about about so much. I think that this uh, this job is so multifaceted that I'm in, and I'm I'm connecting with so many different um, different people and different individuals. Um, I think I'm really I'm to narrow it down. I think I'm really focused on what we what we've been talking about today is how can I be the messenger and be specific to the different groups in ways that are really effective. Um, and do that in a way that um, that is sustaining and really looks at this uh, this work as a marathon and not a sprint. So I'll stop there. Thank you so much, Raúl. What about you? Final thoughts? Yes. Uh, so as I shared in the beginning of the podcast, uh, I began uh, in June first. So it's my first three months of actually doing a, a diversity leadership post. Uh, prior to this, I was a professor of higher education and student affairs and. While I was engaged with activities related to DNI work, uh, I never had a full-time role in the area. Now that I do, I think I have come to really appreciate the time my predecessors or perhaps even leaders in the unit have spent to design the unit, design the position, and think about what it needs to be successful for the folks that come in. And as I continue to chat with diversity officers across the nation, I will really encourage institutions not to use the diversity officer just to calm a crisis and appoint mm -hmm. someone, but spend some time designing and thinking about the role so when the person comes can actually do the work that is needed. So I guess I will end with saying I am thankful that I believe the University of Wisconsin-Madison, specifically the division, thought about that as they prepared to hire new leaders. So it allows you to enjoy the work and enjoy uh, what you know and contribute with what you've been preparing for a long time to be able to do. Thank you so much. Kelly, uh, your final thought. Absolutely. Um, I came across a quote recently from uh, James Baldwin that our conversation today really has me pondering on. And it says that the role of the artist and the lover is the same. If I love you, I have to make you see yourself in ways that you were not able. Mm -hmm. And I think that, that for me, as I'm thinking about our conversation, thinking about this notion of um, the CDO trying to build trust, right? The multifaceted role of the CDO uh, trying to uh, make those connections uh, with a multitude of different constituencies. I really think that um, that is right. That is the role, right? Uh, that, 
the CDO, right, to take up that post um, is a labor of love, right? And um, you are an artist, right, in helping our institutions see how they can be their best selves, right? Um, and really bringing that imaginative spirit of what, what our world could be, right, um, into our different institutions. Uh, I am big on Twitter. Uh, uh, so people can reach me at always with a Z underscore queen um, on Twitter. Awesome. Thank you so much. Um, so grateful to the three of you for your time today. And I can't recommend this book enough. So actually, uh, we'll put a link to it in our um, show notes for today. Thank you for your time. Thank you for the conversation and for all the things that I'm now thinking about myself. Um, also sending heartfelt appreciation to our dedicated behind the scenes work of our producer, Nat Ambrosi. Thank you, Nat, for all of the things that you do as well. If you're listening today and not already receiving our weekly newsletter, please visit our website at studentaffairsnow.com and scroll to the bottom of the homepage to add your email to our MailChimp list. While you're there, check out our archives organized for you in the ACPA and NASPA professional competencies. Thanks to our sponsors of today's episode. Our first sponsor is Stylus. Stylus is proud to be a sponsor of the Student Affairs Now podcast. Browse their Student Affairs diversity and professional development titles at styluspub.com. Use promo code SANOW for 30% off all books plus free shipping. You can also find Stylus on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter at Stylus Pub. Our second sponsor is Vector Solutions. How will your institution rise to reach today's socially conscious generation? These students report commitments to safety, well-being, and inclusion as important as academic rigor when selecting a college. It's time to reimagine the work of student affairs as an investment, not an expense. For over 20 years, Student Vector Solutions, which now includes the Campus Prevention Network, formerly EverFi, has been the partner of choice for 2,000 plus colleges, universities, and national organizations. With nine efficacy studies behind our courses, you can trust and have the full confidence that you are using the standard of care for student safety, well-being, and inclusion. Transform the future of your institution and the community you serve. Learn more at vectorsolutions.com slash studentaffairsnow. Please take a moment to visit our website and click on the sponsors link to learn more. Again, I'm Heather Shea. Thanks to our listeners and to everybody who is watching and listening. Make it a great week, everyone. Mm -hmm.